Hello and welcome to the Eating Disorder Therapist podcast. This is a podcast to help you find peace with food and overcome disordered eating. And I'm Harriet Frew, aka the Eating Disorder Therapist. And I'm so excited to share with you all kinds of stories, tips, information and guest interviews to help you on your journey in finding peace with food. So thank you so much for listening today. Now today I have another guest on the show and I'm speaking to Christy Dondero Betwee, who serves as the Executive Director for Rock Recovery, a non-profit organization that helps people overcome disordered eating by combining clinical and community care and is based in Washington, DC. Having gone through recovery herself, Christy understands the depths of emotional, mental, physical and spiritual support needed to recover. And she is passionate about spreading the message that complete freedom from disordered eating is possible. Christy is an active speaker and shares her story with organizations and media outlets across the country. She lives in Washington, D.C. with her husband, Ryan. I'm really looking forward to speaking with Christy today to hear all about her story and the fabulous work she and her team are doing in supporting people with eating disorder recovery. Let's get to the interview. Hi, Christy, and thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Hi, Harriet. Thanks. It's great to be here. So, Christy, could you just introduce yourself, please, to the listeners? Sure. So, my name is Christy Dondera-Betway, and I work with a nonprofit based in Washington, D.C. called Rock Recovery, and I myself am recovered from an eating disorder, which is what drew me to this work. Okay, lovely. Thank you. So, Christy, could you tell us a little bit more about your story, please, and, and your recovery from an eating disorder? Sure. So I think my story has a lot of similarities to other people. And of course, its own unique differences. Every every story is different. But I started struggling with food at a pretty early age. When I was eight, my family moved from Pennsylvania to Texas, which just really rocked my little world. I liked having my orderly things in my house. I liked kind of knowing what was coming next. And it was really tough for me to kind of cope with the, with the change that was really thrust upon me and not chosen by me. And so one of the ways that I really learned to cope was with food. And I didn't realize, of course, what was happening at the time. But then fast forward a couple of years, and I got much more serious about ballet. And I was a pretty serious ballerina. So I sort of had this conflicting experience where food was the only way I knew how to comfort, but I I knew I had to look a certain way. And I was told I had to look a certain way to kind of be successful and to get the parts that I wanted and the performances and all these different pieces. So I felt like I had a pretty jumbled relationship with food and my body image pretty early on. And that really continued for me all the way into college. I went to school out of state in North Carolina and didn't really know anybody. Same thing again. This time it was a chosen change, but it was still a really hard change. Yeah. And again, food really was that constant companion. But at this time I had been in ballet, I had been on a lot of diets and I realized, wow, when you lose weight, you get compliments. And when you gain weight or your weight stays the same, there's either crickets or critique. And as a very strong words of affirmation, love language person, I'm not sure if you're as familiar with that or not, but I'm definitely someone who loves words of affirmation. And so that really just clicked into my brain. And I realized, well, if I want to be loved, if I want to be accepted, I better stay this certain weight and I better stay this certain size and shape. And so that's really how I lived for a long time. And it, it really snowballed in college into a little bit more of serious patterns of restriction and, and binging and purging. And 
you know, because our culture can be so disordered about thin ideals and fat phobia and all the different things, I almost didn't even realize I had a problem. Like I knew I didn't like my body. I knew I wasn't happy with the way I looked. I knew that I was a little bit, quote unquote, weird about food, but I just didn't realize quite how sick I was. And so eventually when I graduated college, things really spiraled. I moved a couple hours away from where my college was or university. I know many people call it university as well. And I went through another big life change. A friend of mine passed away from cancer and just life got so real. And I realized I didn't have any of the coping skills to handle it. And so you know, my relationship with food and my eating disorder just really spiraled downward pretty quickly. And, you know, I always joke that I kind of stumbled my way. I was kind of tricked into recovery. I didn't, I didn't even realize I had an eating disorder, but I had stumbled upon this program at a local church in North Carolina called New ID that was actually created in the UK. And the whole premise is that complete freedom from eating disorders is possible. And I wasn't really a strong person of faith, but I just kind of came to that church was actually, I met a nice guy at a bar who invited me. So you never know what's going to happen. But I was sitting there in this church and listened to this lovely woman explain, you know, what eating disorders were and what freedom looked like. And I was sort of like, I think I might have one of those. Like what? Why has no one told me this? And so For me, once the scales came off my eyes and I realized I had a problem, I think for me, it all clicked really quickly. You know, I know people have different types of ambivalence. Recovery is hard, hard to want to get better. It's hard to access the things you need to get better. But for me, once I realized, oh, this isn't working for me, it hasn't really been working ever. And it's been getting worse for a long time. And I kind of, someone finally told me there was a different way to live. And so this new ID program, it's a six-week course. It really just kind of gave me the foundations of recovery. And then from there, it spurred me into creating a treatment team and doing outpatient treatment with a therapist and dietitian. So that's really what kind of spurred me into this in my early 20s. And then, you know, I, I did... I didn't go to a higher level of care or residential or hospital or anything. I did do all of my recovery outpatient. But I found... You know, it was really challenging and it was really tough to learn intuitive eating when you had counted calories your whole life and been afraid of half of the foods that are available to you and felt power and control when you said no to certain things and felt shame and complete, I don't know, just despair when you said yes to certain foods. So I really had a lot to untangle and a lot of really intense work to do along with, you know, body image and and just different beliefs about my identity and where my worth came from and, and what made me valuable and lovable. And I had to really untangle my control around food and my body shape and size with what, what made me valuable and what made me lovable. And that was a, a big part of what treatment was for me. And then, you know, it's been over 15 years since I really went through a couple of years of treatment. And I'd say I'm fully recovered and love getting to do this work at Rock Recovery now because I get to be that unicorn that tells people, you know, there's a different way. There really is hope for recovery. And it can be annoying to hear that person when you're so in the throes of your own struggle because it seems like there's no way out. But, you know, there is. And I think that freedom really is possible. It's really hard and it's hard work and there's a lot to do along the way, but I'm very passionate about just giving encouragement that, that it is, it is really possible to get better. Mm. We're so encouraging to hear your story, Christy. And I think as well, I think, yeah, for people to, that you work with today to kind of hear the journey you've been on, see you kind of come out the other side, it's really inspiring. It sounds like as well, it took you a long time perhaps to actually sort of get professional help, like you were kind of muddling along with you for quite a number of years before you kind of perhaps really acknowledged you had an eating disorder. 
Yes, absolutely. That's exactly right. Yes. Mm, yeah, you're sure. And did, had sort of other people around you, like your family or anyone sort of tried to sort of, you know, push you towards recovery any sooner or, or was it something that you had hidden quite well? You know, probably a combination of both. I think I had hidden it pretty well. And since I was away at college when things specifically mm. started to spiral downward, I think, you know, I lived in a dorm or I lived in my sorority house or, or whatever for a while. But again, a lot of people had their own struggles. And a lot of times I would just go eat alone in my room or take something up or say, oh, I'm not hungry. I ate earlier. So if people don't know what to look for, they don't necessarily know what's happening in front of them. Right. And so I hadn't had many people say they were worried about me, maybe a comment here or there, but I think mm-hmm. I, I think I hit it pretty well. And I think because so many people don't like their bodies and are always dieting or kind of changing their food habits, it's just pretty easy to hide, you know? Yeah, they're so very true. And do you think like, were you dancing sort of all the way through your childhood and teenage years? Was that sort of a big part of your life? It was a huge part of my life. Yeah. So really from age 13 to 17 is when I was the most serious, which feels like ages ago now, but it was, it was also a huge part of my identity. And I, again, you know, you're literally taught you're in front of these full length mirrors and leotards and you're taught to sort of compare your bodies to other people and emulate what they're doing or match what they're doing. So it was just impossible to kind of unravel that. I think when I was in that environment for me, I think it was hard for me to tell what was really going on. Yeah, no, sure. No, I think it makes you incredibly vulnerable, doesn't it, to poor body image in those kind of settings. Yes, absolutely. Especially based on your genetics, right? I mean, some people really did have the quote unquote perfect ballet body by genetic design, and I was just not Mm. one of those people. And so it was tough to kind of compare myself because it made me Mm. feel like my body was less than and it's not. It just is designed differently, right? So, yeah. Yeah, no, sure. But, but I guess so tough, isn't it, when you're always in front of a mirror and you're seeing all these other bodies and leotards and incredibly triggering. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And I think what was hard for me is once I learned that skill of comparing and critiquing, it came with me outside of the ballet studio. It didn't just end there I, in the hallways at high school, you know, walking around on campus in college. I, I was comparing and constantly body checking mine against other people's because that learned behavior just kind of went up and never really went back down, even when I quit ballet. Yeah, no, sure. No, it can become a very entrenched habit, can't it? And really quite hard to turn that off when you've been looking at the world through that lens for so long. Yes, absolutely. So can you just say a little bit more as well about your treatment? Like you said, it started with a six-week course and then it kind of moved into this sort of more intensive but kind of like outpatient work. Mm -hmm. So were there lots of different kind of aspects as well to that treatment that you had? Yeah, there were. And I think for me, when I try to boil down what really helped in my recovery, right? Like it's so tempting to want to read the book that these five steps to recovery or whatever this thing might be. And it's it's messy. It's baby steps. It's one step forward, two steps back, you know, right? Or two steps forward, one step back. It's lots of different, lots of different things going on. But I think when I joined that six week course, the new ID course, I remember thinking, six weeks seems like a long time, but I guess if it gets me better, it's worth it. (laughs) And then of course, like the first week of the course, the woman's like, okay, disclaimer, no one will be better at the end of these six weeks. And I was like, oh, really? Are you sure? (laughs) And so it was just one of those devastating, but also just really honest and true things. But 
I think the helpful thing for me was even if I wasn't quote unquote better, there was still progress. And that meant that there was sort of this, this movement and momentum that was getting me to a place that was more joyful and healthy and life-giving, even if it didn't happen overnight. So for my treatment, I, I think the three things that made a difference for me were experts. So working with people with the fancy letters behind their names, I don't have those fancy letters, unfortunately, but we do have a lot of licensed counselors and nutritionists, dietitians and psychologists, psychiatrists, MDs. So I think working with an appropriate treatment team is a huge step of it. And it was a huge part of it for me. And the second thing I would say was just community. I mean, involving my loved ones. So this wasn't so much the clinical part, but telling a few safe friends, telling my family who was super supportive, kind of engaging people who could be there for me and either be accountability or just support just really broke the isolation and helped me Mm -hmm. lose some of the shame around it. And then for me, faith and spirituality was really helpful as well. That really helped me kind of form my identity and understand where my value did come from. So for anyone just figuring out what what do you think values are? Where do you think your worth comes from? And what are the things that you love, the things that give you life? Because that was a huge part of my own recovery as well. But as far as the treatment itself, you know, it was multiple appointments a week. It was skipping out of work here and there. I had a lovely supportive job at the time who really let me take more appointments during the workday than I probably should have been allowed to. And (laughs) just working really, really intensely with a therapist and a dietitian on the ingrained behaviors. I know, you know, now I know what they were doing on me. I'm like, oh, you were doing cognitive behavioral therapy. Now I know what was happening, but, you know, doing different, different types of therapy and treatment in those outpatient settings, multiple appointments a week, and then eventually tapering down. But I remember just being so frustrated sitting in my therapist's office thinking like babies are better at eating than I am. How can a baby be better at this than me? You know, this is so frustrating. So a lot of, a lot of treatment was just kind of working through those frustrations and limitations and not being an expert at something is very hard for me. So it was really helpful to have a strong clinical team help me unpack some of. Mm, yeah, they're sure. And they're really helpful to hear about that. And I think as well, I really like the fact that, you know, you not only mentioned the therapy, but also the fact that, you know, having a community around you, just kind of being more open, breaking the shame around the eating disorder. And then also the kind of faith and spirituality kind of aspect of it. And really kind of like coming more in line with your values and sort of thinking about what was really important to you. Yes. Yeah, that was really it. I mean, I remember one time doing an exercise with my therapist, I think about my values. And then we did this time exercise, like, where does all your thought energy go? And where does all your daily energy go? And I was like, whoa, none of this matches up with what I actually value. It's all thinking about food, calories, you know, working out, whatever. It's not thinking about relationships or love or service or these things that I really valued. And it was it was kind of an awakening for me to realize I say I value these things and yet I'm not living a congruent life with that because this eating disorder is, is really taking so much of my energy. Mm, sure. And it sounds like such a helpful exercise, doesn't it? That just suddenly kind of was a bit of a, like an awakening mo- moment of getting clarity and a sort of bird's yeah. eye view down on things. Yes. Yeah. It helps me to put things on paper and to see it was literally a pie chart you created. So it was mm. super convicting, but it's kind of like how I feel now with my relationship with technology and my phone. If I really like look at the trackers, right. I'm like, Oh, I need to change that piece of the pie a little bit and, and decrease those behaviors a little bit. But yeah, it was, it was really, it was really helpful to kind of put it on paper and to see it visually. 
Mm, sure. And you mentioned like that you had some cognitive behavior therapy, like, was that kind of one sort of therapy that you had, like, or did you, did you sort of, you know, were you introduced to sort of like a multitude of different therapies in your recovery? Sure. I mean, I think this is the problem. Again, I'm not a clinician, but I go to a lot of eating disorder conferences. So I, I feel like I know too little and too much all at the same time sometimes. So <laughs> from what I can tell that my lovely, wonderful therapist did with me, I do think there was a, there was a variety of modalities that were used. I think there was some acceptance continuum therapy, a little bit of you know, dialectical behavior therapy, some DBT as well. So I think there were just lots of different pieces and it, it was not just one, you know, check the box type of treatment. It was sort of, they were different layers that had to be attacked a little bit differently, I think. And, and for me, I'm someone personally that just really values insight. Like, I don't know how to change my behavior unless I understand why I do what I do. And so that's yeah. why I think cognitive behavioral therapy was so helpful for me because it's really reframing your thoughts and beliefs and, be, and then therefore the behavior because I felt really trapped. I didn't know how to how to make the next step without really understanding, well, why am I doing this? Like, what's going on? Mm, sure. So like, yeah, redeveloping that insight and making sense of it really kind of perhaps empowered you then to be able to make some changes. Yes. Yeah. And I'm still, I think this might be a little bit unique to my personality, but that's, that's definitely how change happens for me and how progress happens for me. Yeah, absolutely. Mm, yeah. And I think it's so true for many of us though, actually needing to have that kind of insight to be able to then, yeah, have the awareness to make the change. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Christy, how did you sort of get involved in working for Rock Recovery? Yeah, so it was quite a journey. So I was living in in Charlotte, North Carolina, and had been early on in my recovery, but was really doing better. And I just felt really passionately about helping other people that had been through what I'd been through. And so I was just kind of, you know, on the internet, Googling things and searching for things. And thankfully, you know, the eating disorder treatment landscape in, in the U.S. can be really difficult. Insurance often doesn't cover it. And there's just a lot of private pay. And thankfully, when I came to my parents, I was working at a very low paying, my first job out of college, right? Like no one's making the big bucks. And they really helped me cover that treatment. They would, you know, not say a whole lot, but they put the money in my account every week and they transferred it. And I was able to access treatment. And about a year or two after that, I, I had some friends that I'd met at that new ID course. And a lot of them hadn't made any progress since when I was, since when I first met them. And I kind of realized, oh, it's because they can't afford treatment. Like they, mm. all they could afford was this really, you know, low cost group at this little church. They can't afford to go see a psychologist like I did and do this other work. And so I got really passionate about helping other people who didn't have the same access to care and the privilege that I had. And so I found Rock Recovery. They had just been founded. I was doing some research and I was coming to DC for my cousin's wedding. And so I emailed the founder of Rock Recovery, a lovely woman named Carrie Larson, and asked her if she wanted to get coffee with me. And she responded right away. And when I came up to DC and met with her, I just fell in love with her and with this, with this organization and with the work and the mission behind it. And I was like, well, how can I help? What can I do? And so I started volunteering from North Carolina, even though the program was in Washington, DC, and eventually I decided, okay, I'm going to move to DC to volunteer for this place. I just felt that passionate about it because mm. rock recovery is so new, so unique in that they really do, believe, we do, I can, I can say we, we really do <laughs> believe in bridging gaps to treatment. You know, our whole mission is to break barriers to care, like cost accessibility and mental health stigma. And it's just so unique. And so I took a fancy job that I did not like as a consultant for a couple of years and moved to DC mm-hmm. and then volunteered a lot. And then eventually felt called to come on staff as their first employee. So I, I fundraised my own salary from my family and friends and came on staff eight years ago. 
Mm. Amazing. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, wonderful. I mean, it's wonderful how you are obviously just so passionate about eating disorder recovery. And I love the way how you kind of found what recovery and ended up moving there. And it's obviously a bit like your kind of calling, wasn't it? I think. (laughs) Absolutely. That's exactly the wording I would use. It definitely felt like a calling and and it continues to feel like a calling. And it's been amazing because all of our clients, we offer clinical programs and faith support programs and just community education programs. And everything we do is on a sliding scale. So cost is never a barrier. And it just it feels so amazing to be able to reach people who just probably wouldn't be able to access anything else. So yeah, it's definitely a calling and definitely a, a great joy for me. Yeah, and it's sure that must be really hard in the US, I guess, for a lot of people just won't be able to afford treatment. Is that right? So something like rock recovery is really quite groundbreaking in terms of making treatment more accessible. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's lovely support groups and wonderful things that do happen in other markets, but the treatment, we actually offer low cost treatment and that's something really different. And, and our program is unique. So the majority of our clinical programs are groups. So we do group meal support. So people, you know, eat their meals together and do a therapy directive or body image therapy is our other sort of main program. These are the two things we really do. And right now everything is virtual with COVID, but we we used to be in person and we will continue to do in-person programs again, but we'll also continue to do virtual programs forever because they've worked so beautifully. But these group elements in the outpatient in the outpatient space, you're often, you know, you might be seeing an individual provider, but you don't get that shoulder to shoulder support and you don't get that extra like real life experience, like eating a challenge meal, you know, going showing up and not knowing what's going to be fed to you or knowing you have to try to push yourself to eat some fear foods. Like that's a really tough thing to to kind of create in an outpatient environment. And so that's another unique thing that that ROCKS programs provide is just we offer some of these things that are normally only offered at more intensive facilities to people who are living at home, working full-time, their students. We kind of help bridge that gap. We also refer quite a bit to different residential programs and higher levels of care for people who really do need more treatment and support. We're not equipped to take people who aren't medically stable. At this level of care, it wouldn't be appropriate. But, but we do have that unique sort of layer that we give people that community and that isolation. And, and I always call it the gift of I get it. Like, it's so great to be across the table from somebody who's like, yeah, I get that, you know, and that's kind of hard to find in eating disorder treatment. Okay. Yeah. And it's really interesting because in the UK, I think we are moving a bit more towards group treatments. And I think one for that kind of like, I get it reason as well. And also just to make means that we can kind of help more people as well. So kind of get people into treatment faster and getting the help they need. But is it something as well with rock recovery? Was it quite a conscious decision to use group therapy because of because of that kind of community aspect of the benefits you get from that? Yeah, I think it was definitely because of the community aspects. Also, to your point, you can serve more people. It helps us to serve more people more affordably since we are a nonprofit. And we do encourage and require, actually, the majority of our clients to have at least an individual therapist. So we don't make stipulations on how often they have to see their therapist. And we don't require a dietitian currently because we know of the cost burden for people. But we, we believe, of course, that the individual treatment is critical. But this group aspect just allows us to reach more people. And it and it can often, I don't know, there's just this magical thing that happens in group therapy that people can just make breakthroughs just from being around other people. And so I think there's just this unique healing that can happen when you do it in community. 
Yeah, no, I, I really agree with that. Actually, I think there's a, so much power in groups. And when people access your groups as well, would you have like, say, a group for people that are suffering, say, from anorexia, and then another group for people that suffer from bulimia? Or, or do you do you kind of mix your groups up? Or how does that work? Yeah, we actually mix our groups. We we don't separate based on the behavior of the diagnoses. And I think it works, again, really beautifully. It helps people. So I think we found that people with binge eating disorder, because of the stigma in society, often really do feel a lot of shame. And I think it's been healing for a lot of our clients to with binge eating disorder to see people with anorexia and be like, oh, actually, we're more alike than I realized, even though maybe our behaviors look a little bit different. There's a lot of underlying pieces that that are the same and that healing process can still be really helpful. So we've actually found that it's really quite good to keep people in one group and, and down the road, who knows what we might do as we expand. But mm. it's kind of been, I think, really helpful and really healing to have people with different backgrounds and, and different diagnoses kind of come together. Mm, yeah and it's sure and I mean it makes a lot of sense doesn't it because I think as well I mean I absolutely agree with you like the the underlying sort of issues are often just very very similar aren't they it's just the symptoms are presented slightly differently and again just kind of like realizing you're not alone and that realizing you have quite a lot in common with all these other people even if they have slightly different symptoms that's incredibly Mm -hmm. validating yes absolutely and how many people so do you have in your groups you know what sort of size are they generally yeah, so our groups, when they're virtual, we try to cap them at around eight because, you know, Zoom fatigue is real and it's kind of tough <laughs> to do to get groups being too big. But typically when we have in-person services, those groups are up to 10. So that's for all of our clinical programs. And then for our faith support programs that are kind of more curriculum based and then have discussion group time, those can get up to 25, even 30. And then we normally split because the magic of Zoom, you can split into breakout rooms for smaller conversations. So it, it really depends on the program, but the clinical programs we try to keep between eight and 10. Yeah, no, sure. And it's fantastic, isn't it? I think one sort of good thing that's come out of this awful pandemic is just opening up this online support. And like you're sort of saying as well, like has it allowed Rock Recovery as well to be able to reach a lot more people and kind of, you know, a much wider population? Yes, it's been, that's definitely the redemption of COVID. I feel like we now have people who never could have made it to our office. You know, people who have multiple children or single moms who live an hour away who couldn't afford to drive and then park. So it's definitely opened up access to more people. And since our clinical programs right now in the U.S. are kind of done by state, like the state licensure follows the therapist. So it's Virginia or Maryland or wherever the place might be. We've been able to reach people in more rural areas as well, because you can reach people across the whole state, not just people who could drive to your facility in person. So that's been really, really pretty amazing. And I think that's the that's, again, the redemption of COVID and virtual work is that more people have really reached out for help since COVID hit. We've had, I think, on average, like a 200 percent increase in inquiries of people reaching out for help. Yeah. So we've had a we've been very busy and there's been a lot <laughs> a really lot going on. But I think part of it is because they can come through virtual. So there's not as many barriers to kind of work through. And I think people are struggling more with mental health challenges now than ever before. But there is also that access that there's less things that could keep people from reaching out. Mm, Yeah, no, sure. And do you plan as well, kind of as we're coming out of the pandemic, and do you plan to kind of keep some of your services virtual so people can access that support? 
Yeah, absolutely. So last year, actually, on March 20th of 2020, I was about to make public our five-year vision plan. And then, of course, that entire vision plan has changed. I know. I was so sad. Oh, gosh, it was such a good plan. I worked so hard. It would have been so good. But the world has changed, right? Yeah. And so now that vision plan is being edited to really include virtual services indefinitely because it really does help with access and barriers and it's more affordable. We don't have to pay for space or for food or for the things that we normally do pay for in person. So we'll definitely do virtual programming forever. It'll just depend on what people need. We always try to pivot and, you know, accommodate the the current needs and kind of evolve to be as relevant as we can for our clients. But for now, we're definitely planning on continuing to grow our virtual services to be able to reach more people. Mm, sure. Well, that's quite exciting, isn't it? That is one kind of redeeming factor of COVID. <laughs> <laughs> and can you say a bit more as well about kind of more the kind of faith-based recovery programs as well? Is, is that kind of something that's done a little bit differently from the kind of sort of standard groups? Yeah. So the clinical programs are truly, you know, evidence-based clinical care. We always integrate spirituality for clients as they desire. It's really a client-led experience because we do think serving the whole person is so valuable. And that is one thing that Rock really values values is, you know, serving whole people. And so helping people show up, you know, as their congruent selves. So with our face support programs, those really have taken off since COVID. We actually now the new ID course that I went through over 15 years ago, we now actually operate that and sort of own the program. And so that's been really fun because we've gotten to update some of the content. We work really closely with the wonderful founder, Kim Hemsley, And we've been able to move it virtually. So that normally is run in person at churches, but now we're running it virtually. I think in the last year we've served at least 150 people through that program, Mm. which has been great. People from all different countries, people from all over. We have people waking up at like 4 a.m. to join us on Zoom because they didn't have anything like it. And that's what's interesting for people of faith. And we specifically, our programs are from the Christian perspective, but anyone is welcome. We we don't discriminate against clients of any sort, but we have found that people who want to integrate their faith and spirituality, it's hard to do. It's really hard to find those holistic places that balance sort of the science and evidence-based care with the faith healing and the spiritual support. So that's a really unique thing we're able to offer. We also offer a handful of other six-week courses and workshops on body image or intuitive eating. And then we just started a weekly group called Lasting Freedom. That's sort of like a devotional group and support group. It's 7 a.m. our time in here in D.C., so I, I won't do the math of what it is for your time, but it's basically just meant to offer a different kind of time. And since that's run by by alumni or by trained peer leaders, not by clinicians, the face support programs are available to anyone anywhere because they're informed by clinicians, but they're not run by clinicians. Mm, okay, well, that, I mean, that's really great, isn't it? Because I'm sure there might be some people listening that might that might be just really appealing for them to sort of integrate faith and, yeah. and into recovery. Well, one thing that we found is, you know, the church is lovely, faith communities are lovely, but they're often misinformed about mental health. And so that's one thing that we've really found. We've been able to reach people with the truth that no, it's not a sin to have an eating disorder. And like, yes, you can pray about this. And yes, God still loves you. And I don't know, there's just been so many lives we've been able to break through for people. And it's often the light switch aha moment they have when they sort of realize, oh, like God's not mad at them for having an eating disorder, you know? So there's just been a lot of, I think, well-intentioned faith leaders that have really gotten it wrong around mental health challenges. And so I think that's really been a sweet thing we've been able to help people heal from. Mm. Oh, that's really helpful to hear that. It really is. Because I think the last thing you need an eating disorder recovery is more feeling like 
yeah feeling like you've kind of sinned or you're responsible or you've done something really badly wrong (laughs) you're probably feeling that already yeah exactly (laughs) exactly sure and what about as well like I'm really interested like you do kind of do the body image groups as well like I appreciate you're not a clinician but could you say a little bit more about the body image groups and kind of what happens there Sure. So for our clinical body image groups, they're an hour and a half long every week. And it's really just sort of, it varies. It's working through either cultural pressures and tendencies. It's sometimes unpacking different things from advertising, social media. It's often getting to the root causes of, you know, beliefs and behaviors, again, about identity and worth and helping people understand their self-value, where their worth comes from. There's just various therapeutic directives that the therapist really creates week to week based on the client group that we have at the time. So there might be things on thinking through different standards, kind of figuring out how they can challenge societal norms or just, again, thinking through what their unique values are and kind of working to, to accept their bodies as they are and as they were made, not as they wish they were or they wish they could be. Mm. So that's been a really deep thing. And of course, disordered eating, you know, comes up in those groups, but the, the body image therapy groups are really meant for people who are a little further along in recovery, who probably maybe have weight restored or mostly stabilized in their weight and maybe their new body post-treatment. And they just need some help really accepting accepting the body that they have. Mm, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I think it's quite hard to do that body image work, isn't it? When you are quite underweight um, and then you're in the sort of process of weight restoring, it's yes. going to help with it a bit along the road. Yes, exactly. So, you know, we, of course, might address that in individual therapy or in our our meal support groups. Of course, the topic of body image might come up with people who are still kind of working in a little, a little earlier in their recovery journey. But yes, I mean, it's, it definitely is something that we found is good to, to do a little bit, a little bit further along in the journey. Yeah, no, sure. And Christy, one thing I'm quite interested in as well, isn't it? Because I think, I think in the US and the UK, obviously, we're so impacted by kind of diet culture and all this stuff on social media and pressure to be thin Mm -hmm. or pressure to be like really lean and all of that I'm just wondering as well like does recovery have any sort of role at the moment in kind of preventative work or going into schools or kind of dealing with younger people Sure. Yeah. So we do. We do have some we call it our community empowerment programs where we do various things in the community, either workshops for for parents, for teachers, for clergy. We try to help educate the frontline people on the realities of eating disorders and what to look for and all of those myth busting things that we need to often do. And we also offer workshops for people who might be struggling themselves, for their loved ones, for partners or family and do different, you know, one or two or three hour workshops kind of depending now virtual and in person, hopefully again, one day soon. And then we also, you know, we do, this is one of the most unique things that we do. Our founder was a track and field athlete. And so we actually do a 5k fun run slash walk. We don't make anyone run. People can walk, they can do whatever they want. They don't have to finish, but that's been a really neat way to get in front of an audience that often is struggling and doesn't realize it. You know, people who are really into exercise and fitness often have a lot of disordered eating patterns and would never be able to recognize it. So that's been kind of fun. We'll do a quick little talk and, explain what rock does and do a little talk on body image or disordered eating and then you know go walk or whatever we do together for the for the 5k so that's been another fun way we often reach the community just with education and and a lot of clinical clients have come to us from those programs because our our community empowerment programs are really meant to help people break through isolation too so we find a lot of people you know linger at the end of an event and they're like hey so I think I might need some help like what do I do and 
it's just really neat to get to reach people where they are. That's something we're really passionate about doing. And then, of course, preventing and educating people as well is a, is a huge passion. But really, early intervention is probably where more of our educational focus is, is really focused on. Yeah, and it's so powerful, isn't it? Because I think the early intervention stuff is so key, isn't it? Because, yes. you know, obviously, if someone gets help, you know, particularly within the first three years, or I mean, the earlier, the better. You don't really want to wait three years, do you? Yes. But, you yeah. know, the earlier, the better, really, to be able to kind of come out of an eating disorder sooner and for it to not become like an entrenched habit. And yeah, all of that. Yes. I love the idea as well about you just kind of really meeting people out in the community, because I think it's so true that particularly like in the fitness industry and and all of that, a lot of people actually are suffering with eating disorders, but not realizing it or disordered eating. Mm -hmm. And it sounds great. I think like your, your 5k, 5k slash walk run or whatever. Um, (laughs) Yeah. That you're actually kind of going out to people and then they're kind of hearing the message and able to kind of approach you in a sort of non-clinical setting which probably feels just much more accessible for people. Yes, yes. And that's why our community programs and our face support programs, when we, when we used to offer them with churches in person, you know, it gives people that next step that's so much less scary sometimes. And I love therapists. I don't think they're that scary, but I can see how someone who hasn't worked with therapists for the last 15, 20 years might feel some trepidation. So it is definitely a great way to help people take a next step and then the next step and then the next step right so that's been a really cool thing yeah and it's so good to hear actually and I think you know just hearing that as well it just makes me think we could really do with doing more of that in the UK because I think you know trying to access help sometimes in the UK it is a bit in this kind of like ivory tower you know in the hospital Mm. it can feel you can feel very apprehensive I think trying to and and that help can feel quite unreachable whereas if you're kind of coming out into the community and talking much more openly and making it really accessible it's just a really powerful sort of stepping stone isn't it for someone to take a move forward yes absolutely absolutely Oh, well, Christy, it's just so great for you to be here today and to be talking about rot recovery and also for sharing your story. If people want to find out more about rock recovery and everything that, you know, that the wonderful organization does, could you tell us like where to find you? Sure. So our website is just www.rockrecoveried.org. And then on social media, on Instagram, I think our handle is just Rock Recovery. On Facebook, it's Rock Recovery ED. And Twitter, I think it's just Rock Recovery. I'm so bad at social media. I'm sorry, I can't give you the exact ones, but I, I'm pretty sure that's what we are. But if you look for us, just a good old Rock Recovery or Rock Recovery ED, you should be able to find our organization. And we have a blog and we do have a newsletter people can sign up for if they're interested and, and just various things that we, we do offer as well. Mm, okay brilliant yeah well, I'm sure people would you know like to find out more and we'll be sort of you know looking you up in the show notes well Chrissy thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and for you know sharing your story and for talking all about the valuable work that goes on at Rock Recovery thank you Harriet it was so great to be with you today I really I really appreciate it so I hope you enjoyed this conversation just as much as I did and do go and check out all of Christy's info in the show notes you're not following me already do seek me out on instagram at the eating disorder therapist and for further support in your relationship with food do go to my website theeatingdisordertherapist.co.uk if you'd like to support this podcast do visit my patreon account and all the details about that are in the show notes 
And if you enjoyed this episode today, I would be so grateful if you would rate and review it as it really helps the podcast reach so many more listeners. Thank you so much for listening today and I look forward to sharing another podcast episode with you very soon.